Amen. Good morning. About six years ago, we had some people over to our house for dinner and enjoyed a wonderful dinner, great fellowship. And right before uh, our friends left, uh, my boys, and they were, they're 10 and 8 now, so they were 4 and 2 maybe at the time. They said, can we, we would like to pray over our friends before they leave. And what parent's going to say, no, we don't got time for that, you know? So we're like, yeah. Uh, and when my boys uh, interact or entertain or pray, you never really never know what's going to happen. So they began praying this prayer over our friends. And it went something like this. Dear God, thank you for the food and hammers and, you know, looking around the room, thanking God for everything. And then it got to this point where they said, and God, thank you for everyone in this room. And thank you that they are alive. But there's someone in this room who has died. And when that happened, I opened my eyes in the prayer because I was like, I don't know if like one of my kids is a prophet. Like, did, did, he just, like, did they just pull an Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira? Did someone drop dead? I wanted to make sure all the guests were still alive and everybody, everyone was breathing, you know. Uh, but God, someone in this room has died. And everybody was alive, so we're good. He kept, and my son keeps, kept praying. Someone in this room has died. Um, and it's Jesus. But he's not dead anymore. He's alive. Thank you for resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. And there are those moments where you just want to applaud your kids, right? Uh, we're in Romans 8. Get your Bibles out. Turn to Romans 8. I'm hinging this entire series. And Romans 8 is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. And in Romans 8, verse 11, it says, Just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he's going to raise us too. That the same spirit who was able to lift Jesus out of a grave and breathe life into his dead body is the same spirit that's going to breathe life and speak life into your body to bring us back to life or to life. Um, I want to take just a moment to welcome all the guests who are here. I see the faces of a lot of people. I don't know your names. I don't know your stories. I'm so glad you're with us today. Take a moment if you got a bulletin uh, on the back page. There's a place for you to fill out some information about yourself. Give us something to pray for, and you can take those to the Connection Center afterwards. Uh, get yourself a, a CD from our praise team here, and somebody will be there to greet you. Uh, so glad that all of you are here, even with some of the weather and things. Um, I'm excited about Romans 8. N.T. Wright, one of the great theologians of today. Some people call him the leading scholar theologian of the 20th and 21st century. And N.T. Wright said if he could only have two chapters that he could read in the Bible or study for the rest of his life, he would choose John chapter 20 and Romans 8. And we're walking through Romans 8 right now. It's 39 verses, and I've encouraged you to try to read all of this throughout the week so that we don't just come in. Today I'm preaching on eight verses, but there are eight verses that are in the context of a lot more going on. Romans 8, and even a lot of the Bible, it's almost like if you've ever been to a symphony, no one goes to a symphony and says, I'm here only to listen to the bass. That's all I care about. I just want to hear the bass. Uh, if you've been to a symphony, it builds and it goes slow and times it goes fast. And then there's this crescendo when all these moving parts come together. And it's, all, it's how the Bible's read. And I'm not against you picking up your Jesus calling and other devotional material that are giving you some thoughts for the day. Because God uses that to encourage your heart. But I want to encourage you when it comes to reading the Bible. To not just take verses and make them refrigerator verses or magnets. But be able to read the Bible in the greater context. To see how this symphony is playing out. That there are times where it, the movement's fast and times it's slow. And in Romans 8, you can't just take a verse from it. You can't just take Romans 8, 28. That God works to all things good for those who love Him. And, and not keep it in 
all the rest of its context. So the first Sunday back in September when I was in Romans 8, I tried to give you historical context because Romans was written at a time in the midst of Emperor Nero, one of the most brutal emperors that ever lived. And Paul's writing to these people under the rule of Nero, but he's also writing to a church. It's this mixture of Jews and Gentiles, and there was a lot of tension. I'm convinced the New Testament would be a lot shorter if Paul wasn't concerned and passionate about bringing together rich and poor and Jews and Gentiles. He was convinced that the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus was meant to bring people together. Now, I, I believe churches need to reflect their communities, and there are some churches that are in kind of all white cities, towns, or contexts. There's churches that are in all black contexts. I think churches need to reflect whatever is around them. And for our case, our church needs to reflect what our neighborhood is. It's a mixture of whites and blacks and people from other skin colors and ethnicities. Revelation gives you images and depictions that when, the, when God brings all things to fulfillment, it's not that all of us become one ethnic group. It's that there are, the, there are nations and tribes and languages. And whenever the church doesn't honor this, we're under the powers of the the principalities of darkness not the principalities of the light we're trying to live into something greater and that's what romans is trying to do romans is also concerned about people having this big picture of what the gospel is and how the gospel impacts your life let me show you romans chapter one uh paul talks about the gospel in verse 13 and 15 now keep in mind he is writing to christians He's writing to Jews and Gentiles who've been baptized. They've given their lives to Jesus before. And here's what he says. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as I have among the rest of the Gentiles. Hence my eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul tells Christians that he's eager to get to them to preach the gospel to them. If you believe, or if we believe, that the gospel is only about you going somewhere when you die, you have been sold something that's far short of what God thinks of when he thinks about the gospel. The gospel is not just about a destination. It's not just about going to a place when you die. And I don't want to minimize eternal life or what heaven's going to be like. The gospel is about you being ushered into this new covenant with Jesus where we get to thrive in the light and the life and the joy of God. It's a lot bigger than a destination that you go when you die. The gospel is about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God has a king and the king is Jesus and the king invites people into his kingdom and gives them responsibility and authority and asks them to steward their gifts and who they are so that we are all working into the hope of God in the future. So Rome's Romans is about giving people this big picture of what the gospel is. And today I want to read eight verses and I want to unpack them for you. And I got a tough task ahead of me because this is loaded. But check this out. Romans chapter 8 verse 18 through 25. And get a, if, if you underline in your Bible, there's so many things to underline. So highlight them. I'm going to try to get some, to some stuff. If you have questions, you can email my wife later on. She would love to try to answer some of those questions for you. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, which is the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. 
And now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let me talk about hope just for a moment. You can underline there are a few different places where the word hope shows up. It was Jim Coleman, one of our elders, a dear friend of mine, an elder in this church who passed away two and a half years ago. And I remember Jim telling me, Josh, the the most hopeless, it, hopeless people are the most dangerous people in the world because they have nothing to live for. They forget where they've been and they don't have anything to live for. And, and hope in the Bible, hope is more than wishful thinking. Hope is active participation. Hope is the church looking at each other and telling each other, and we sing songs to edify one another so that you're reminded that there are promises of God and these aren't just wishful things. These are... We are standing on the hope. We're standing on these promises, speaking them into existence, bringing them into existence. Uh, My sister, when she died, she was uh, uh, ministering to to a lot of women in her life who were lonely and depressed. And there were times that those women at my sister's funeral, uh, about seven and a half years ago, those women came up to us and said, Jenny would often text us one word. She would text us the word hope. She would call us and she would speak the word hope over us. So here Paul's saying, hey, all this groaning going on in your life, all the suffering, pointing people to glory and reminding them, hey, there is this hope, and it's hope that you wait for. In fact, in verse 18 through 25, you wait for things three different times. If you go to that next slide up there, um, there are three different places. In 8 verse 19, creation waits within your longing. Chapter 8 verse 23, we wait. And in 8.25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I know there ain't nobody in this place today who likes to wait. What's the thing in your life, you don't have to speak this out loud, but what's the thing in your life you hate to wait for the most? Uh, Waiting in line, waiting in traffic. You make that service call and you're put on hold with that music that just makes you go crazy, right? Right? Um, and, And... a lot of we wait for things throughout all of life. We have to wait for a car to get fixed. We have to wait for the, the call to tell us about some test we took. And, and all this waiting, and sometimes we can place that upon our relationship with God too. It, it's hard to wait for, for God's fulfillment and for his promises and for, for hope to be seen. But the waiting here, this is not about, this is not about creating anxiety for you. I mean, this, this word about waiting, this eager waiting, this is not anxiety. This is not about uncertainty. This kind of waiting is this eager expectation. It's confident expectation. So we are eagerly waiting for this hope that God has given us, not passively waiting, but actively waiting, not just sitting back. This is not the image of you just sitting back on a couch waiting for something to happen. This is the image of when you go to a concert and there's the... the person who comes out and they, they're, the, they're the first act and they're out there and you're waiting for the big show. This is when you're in a crowd and you're trying to see something and you're craning your neck. You're like trying to look around through people's shoulders so you can see what it is you need to see. This is sitting on the edge of your seat trying to get a glimpse. And this is what we do when it comes that we are eagerly waiting on this kind of hope. This glory that is to be revealed. So what are we waiting for? And here's what Paul talks about in Romans 8, verse 18 through 25 is um, that we are waiting and we are groaning and we are hoping and it's more than wishful thinking, but there's this combination of these two words that come together that drive me nuts, all right? And it's Romans 8, verse 17 and 18. This isn't on the screen, but look in your Bibles. 
Verse 17 says this, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. We're God's heirs. We're God's children. In fact, together with Christ, we're heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share in God's glory, we must also share in Jesus's suffering. This word glory often goes with the word suffering. And I would like to choose one over the other, right? I would like to think that when you become a Christian, we give our lives to God, that we get the glory, but we don't have to suffer anymore. But we know that's not true. Suffering and glory go together. Verse 18, yet we suffer now. What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to us later. There's this combination. There's this gathering of glory and suffering. Uh, when Paul talks about glory, and this, this shows up three different times in 18 through 25, glorification. You've heard phrases before about being called up in the glory. The Bible talks about the people of God, the children of God, that you will be called into God's glory. God's going to share his glory with you. This glory is about glorification, perfection, holiness, the redemption of your bodies. This is a beautiful thing. This is a great gift. Yet what you read is that if you want to share in this kind of glory, you've also got to share in Jesus' sufferings. And this is more than your sins being placed on Jesus on the cross. So he took on your sins and he suffered for us and he died, which all that is true. It's more than that. It's suffering along with. It's understanding our role in the world. So when I wrote my first book, I remember I was processing suffering in my own life. I was processing the death of my sister and how prayer works and how God intervenes. I was also processing a lot of injustices in the world. So I was reflecting on Memphis and Shelby County and domestic violence and racism and, and poverty lines and education and, and, and all these issues. And so there were all these forms of suffering happening in my life and I was having to process this with God. So what I did is I spent time and I basically broke suffering up into three categories. Let me give those to you and see if these resonate in some kind of way. One category of suffering is that there is intentional suffering in our lives because of sin. Because we make decisions in which we step outside of the boundaries that God set up to protect the goodness of life. And we can make a mess out of life, right? Uh, there is within each of us the ability to cause a lot of harm to ourselves and to other people. I've told you before, and I believe this to the core of who I, who I am and what I believe, but there is no such thing as private sin in your life, secret sin that doesn't have an impact on everyone else around you. And I know you know this is true in the lives of alcoholics and drug addicts and people who have had addictions to pain meds. This affects everyone around them, but it's also true when it comes to sins like greed and um, unhealthy desires for success, that there are dads who have been able to hold a family together, but they've cared so much about their career uh, and making money, and they provided for their kids, but they haven't been present with their family. There's no such thing as sin in your life, and unhealthy desires that don't have an impact on everyone else. So sometimes we suffer because of sin, and we suffer consequences because of sin. The second form of suffering that I put, put a category in is that there's intentional suffering because we make decisions to step into mess. We make decisions to step into brokenness. It's called incarnation. This is what Jesus did. This is what God did, that there was a world that had gone crazy, and through Jesus, God chose to step into the mess of the world. So the call of the church isn't to escape from the pain of the world, but it's to engage the pain of the world, to step into the mess because we believe in resurrection and restoration. And this is, this is messy. This is chaotic. And maybe a question to ask is, when is the last time you felt like you did a, something uncomfortable for Jesus? When's the last time you felt like God nudged you and you obeyed God to get outside of your comfort zone to do something for God? 
All right, so God is, there's intentional suffering because we make decisions to suffer. We make decisions to step into places. And thirdly, there are unintentional ways we suffer. These are the times when we are inducted into some clubs we never signed up for. When cancer strikes, when um, natural disasters, fires, earthquakes, hurricanes, floods, those things in life that it doesn't seem to be because you sin and other people didn't sin, just the whole world has gone crazy. So when my sister was stuck with strep throat and it ends up killing her 18 days later and I'm left to process like, oh, I mean, how did this work? What happened? All right. So there are these categories of suffering. And when it comes to Romans 8, I think Paul was kind of talking about all of them. I mean, I think Paul would, would I, I think Paul would agree with the three categories I place in front. But I, I, I think that second category is one Paul's really looking to. Paul's also speaking to people that he just told in chapter 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. So there's no condemnation that Satan can bring upon your life for those who are in Jesus, and there's no condemnation that Emperor Nero or anyone else can bring upon your life that can take you away from the covenant of God if you're in Jesus too. Suffering and glorification. N.T. Wright says this, He says, God will not only rescue his people from suffering, but he will rescue the world through his people's suffering. And I can't help but think sometimes the church comes together and God's looking at the church and God's saying, who's ready to get into the game? That there's some mess to engage in on Monday. Who's ready? Because there's a God to love and there's work to do and there are things to do. And it's not so that we can get saved or that we gain favor with God. It's because we are saved that there's a life to live with God. Uh, and here Paul uses this word, and I've, it's a word I've tried to understand in a lot of different ways, but three different times Paul talks about groaning. In chapter 8, verse 18 through 25. And he says that they, people groan like uh, in the pains of childbirth. A few different times when Paul writes to people, he talks about this. Like you're groaning like in the pains of childbirth. Casey and I, we've had two kids. Actually, Casey had them. I didn't really have them. Uh, but I've, I've heard the groans of childbirth before. Um, I was there to hear the groans, even though my oldest was born right there in the middle of NBA playoffs. I was there, all right? Uh, um, one, time, one time, Casey groaned so loud it woke me up, all right? I mean, it was, it was crazy. Just messing, all right? I remember when we were in there, uh, I, mean, I could see my wife. I, I could see she was in pain, and then the anesthesiologist came in and gave her an epidural. And it's the only time I've seen my wife, other than myself, her dad, or her brothers, it's the only time I've seen my wife look into the face of another man and say, I don't know who you are, but I just want you to know I love you. <laughs> and I, I started sizing this dude up. I was like, what kind of, who are you to get these affections from my wife? You know? <laughs> It was crazy. We're in the room, and I remember when Noah was born, it happened where Casey was in some pain, and this anxiety attack broke out, where the pep talk wasn't working, like, we've been here before. We can do this, breathing deeply, like things were going terribly wrong. And what was, what was really bad is that it wasn't Casey having the anxiety attack. It was me. I was just pacing around, like, this is, I just don't know what to do. And she's like, Josh Ross, get a hold of yourself, you know? Epidural man, give one to my husband like the dude's in need, you know. Uh, the way the groans of childbirth are supposed to work, even though Genesis 3 says that painful childbirth is a result of the fall, it's a, it's a, it's a result of the curse. 
the way childbirth is supposed to work is that there's pain, but it leads to new life. It's the way it's supposed to work. I know people in here, you've had miscarriages and you've lost kids. The way, the way God intends for it to work is that there may be something painful, but it's supposed to lead to, to new life. And I think this is what Paul has in mind here. That there are pains of childbirth because there's so much that God is trying to birth into existence and bring into existence. But this kind of groan right here, and if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. This kind of groaning that you see in chapter 8, 18 through 25, this is not the groan of despair. This is the groan of frustration that something isn't right. Something isn't working like God intended for it to work. So these aren't the groans of despair and depression. It's the groans of frustration of these, just offering up these groans to God. So what you see here is creation groans. Humanity groans. And then what I'm going to talk more about next week in verse 26 to 28, the Holy Spirit's groaning. So there's all this groaning going on. Now, so what I often do is I, I, I open up a passage. I'm reading it for weeks. I'm preparing to preach it. And this week, or the last couple of weeks, I've wanted to know, like, what's, what's behind, like, this groaning? And why does Paul talk about creation so much? And, and this hope? And what does it mean to eagerly wait? So I'm sifting through, studying the Bible, wanting it to have its way with me. But then I'm also holding that in, in one hand, and in the other hand, trying to hold all the cultural events and things going on in our world and then wanting this, the Word of God, to speak words into everything going on in our culture and our world. So uh, as I'm studying and reading chapter 8, verse 18 through 25, I'm scrolling through social media a few days ago and I, and I catch wind of this Me Too campaign. I knew it's October. I know October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. As a board member of Agape, that there are times I'm invited into conversations and praying over people who are, it's the number one reason Memphis police have, it's the number one reason they get a call is because of domestic violence. And then this Me Too campaign started, which kind of started with high profile people, a lot of women, some men, but primarily women in Hollywood who are coming out saying that stories of maybe a few years ago or decades ago, there was sexual abuse and harassment in their own life. And then as I scrolled, I started seeing people who I know who were putting me too on there. Some stories I was aware of, a lot that I wasn't. And my heart was just like torn apart and ripped open because the way it often works, it seems to work, is that there's pain in people's lives. And sometimes we live in denial because we don't want to believe that the pain is as great as it really is. And as a church, we also know that if we give voice to a lot of pain in people's lives, then things can get really messy. And we're called into that mess and into that chaos. But what happens when the church doesn't give voice to people's pain and feelings of emptiness, loneliness, shame, whatever may be there, what happens is people just keep it inside because they don't think they have a place to voice anything. And the more I've talked to people who put a hashtag Me Too on Facebook or Twitter, and the sum of those, that they've said, man, it, I just didn't feel like I grew up in a church where I could say anything. And if I did, people didn't believe me. And there's this pain that exists inside of many of you. And knowing with every Me Too hashtag, there's also an offender out there. Just the pain of our world, the groans that are being offered up. And then God began to move in my life like this. Too often when we hear a groan come from an individual or from a group of people, we automatically listen to the groan and then try to discern whether we think that the groan's legit or not. Like, does that count? Or do you just need to get over it and get on with life? 
And then I'm reminded of the story of World War II when there were trains carrying Jews and gypsies and physically handicapped people to concentration camps. And there was a church that the train would go by. And that church knew that there was a time during their worship service when this train would come by them. And when the train came by, people were yelling and screaming for help. And the church said all they knew to do was to sing louder. They would play their instruments louder and they would sing just to try to drown out the noise. And I know there are groans happening all around us. And what do we do? We listen. And do we listen and then automatically try to say, that's legit, that counts, or that doesn't count. Because there are all these groans coming up from people who are, it's coming from a place of pain and emptiness. And it's because of Me Too hashtags and domestic abuse and sexual violence. And it's because of, you, you have dreamers and people held on their DACA and there's this groan. You have groans coming up because of racial tension. And people I've talked to over the last few weeks who have had moms or, or parents and grandparents die from the KKK, who have these stories that they live with in their family. You have stories from people in poverty and all these groans that are coming up. And it's not our job to hear a groan and then say, that counts or that doesn't count. It's our job to say, okay, if the Spirit of God is roaming the world and the Spirit of God lives inside of believers and we're told in Romans 8 that the Spirit of God is groaning for people, what I need to ask is, is the Spirit of God groaning in this person's pain? And if so, how can I keep in step with the Spirit so I can step into any situation and try to speak a word of Jesus' truth and Jesus' grace? Uh, These groans are being offered up. In fact, you're told creation groans, and I don't know how that works. Does creation have a heart? Does creation have emotions? I think what Paul is visualizing and what he's placing in front of the people in the church in Rome is that the resurrection of Jesus did something greater and bigger than you could ever imagine because for God to only be concerned about saving your life is too small. And for God to only be concerned about saving a nation, and the Bible says this in the Old Testament, even as much as God loved Israel and cared for Israel and delivered Israel and fought for Israel, the Old Testament has times where God says, hey, you think for me, like my desire is to save a nation? To save a nation is too small of a thing for God. God wants to save and deliver and liberate anything that has been held in bondage by Satan, which includes all of creation. That God longs for creation and any of you who are being held in bondage so that you can be released from death and decay and from any form of bondage that holds you down. So the good news of of God, and I, I hope I'm placing in front of you good news of this text in Romans 8, is that God cares about liberation for anything that's held in bondage. Anything Genesis 3 has done, God wants to undo that, to release it so we can live to the fullest of its potential and the freedom that God gives. Um, so creation's groaning the same way we are to experience this liberation. I've heard people before state that, you know, a lot of the Bible, the majority of the Bible, it's an oppression narrative. And what they mean, an oppression narrative, what they mean is a good bit of the Old Testament was written in times of oppression, either Egyptian oppression, Babylonian oppression, Assyrian oppression. How many Psalms come to us in the Psalms where David's writing from caves and on the run, All 27 books of the New Testament are written during the reign of the Roman Empire. All of them are in a time of great oppression. And yet God comes through Jesus and through resurrection with this passion to liberate anything that is being held in bondage. 
Uh, so we live in this already not yet state where the freedom of God has already been given to you. It is here, yet we know we have not lived it. We have not fully matured into God's given what he wants for us, right? It's just already not yet. It's that we've been saved and salvation has begun in your life, but we're still in the process of being transformed in the image of Jesus. Romans 8 tells us that there is the redemption of our bodies. I think it's going to be a physical body just like what you saw Jesus raised in. This body that can no longer deteriorate in your life anymore. This is going to be given, but we know while we live now, there's still deterioration in our lives and in the world. What I'm also learning is the older I get, the more embarrassing stories of pain become. And what I mean is, a few years ago, my back went out. I had a little back trouble, and people were like, what happened? And I wish I had a story of like, you know, man, there was a, someone pinned under a car, and I just, I was trying to pick the car up to save somebody. But sometimes the stories we have is I, I was like reaching down in the second to lowest drawer to get a shirt out, and my back just went out, you know. I sneezed, and something happened to my shoulder, you know. We deteriorate, there's death and there's decay, but man, there's this hope that we are waiting for, eager expectation. So the Spirit of God is working to do a few things. In chapter 8, verse 23, there are those who say this is the answer to chapter 7, verse 24. And in 724 is where you read, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from the body of death? And those who argue that Romans 8.23 becomes the answer to that, that not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly while we wait for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. The Spirit of God doesn't free us from the tension and stress of the world. If anything, the Spirit of God, even though the Spirit is a Spirit of comfort and a Spirit of joy, the Spirit is heightening the senses in us. To be aware of the pain around us. The Spirit is bringing these things to life. Often causing this anguished expression inside of us. Reminding us that we are not yet complete. And it's the Spirit who is activating in us this desire to follow God in a way that we know what God wants. And where God is going and how God is calling us to follow Him. So that this hope that we are longing for is not something we're just sitting back waiting for. It's that we are pressing into that hope and that hope is also pressing into us. So God is a good God who made a good world. And he steps in because he's not going to leave this world broken as it is. James Dunn says this when it comes to eagerly waiting and with patience. He says this. He says this characterizes the in-between times not so much as the period of resigned or stoical suffering nor one simply of anguish groaning, nor one of careless enthusiasm, but rather one of eager waiting. And I love this phrase right here. Patience with a vibrant quality. I want that. Um, I know there are people in this room hearing this message that I preached this morning, and you're hearing it from a lot of different experiences and emotions and places in life. There are some of you who you're hanging on by a thread. And there are some of you who are at the most joyful place you've ever been. And you realize there may be complacency in your life. And there are some of you who are just at a place where you're praying the boldest prayers you've ever prayed for God to use you in ways you can never imagine. Um, I was talking with a friend the other day about um, sinkholes. You, you've read these stories. You've seen these stories in Florida where there, there are these sinkholes where it's just like all of a sudden just the, the ground sinks. And the ho- homes are swallowed up and... 
I know this has taken lives of some people. This is these sinkholes. And it's like just all of a sudden, just the ground falls out and it just sinks. But it didn't happen just all of a sudden. There were days, weeks, months, years, maybe decades of erosion. A little bit here, a little bit there, where over time, I mean, there just was this sink that happened. And as groanings are coming from you or someone I bet you know or that you were close to, there there's, could be this erosion that's just slowly happening. And if it's you, let the church come alongside of you to pray the prayers, to hold you up, to be strength where you are weak, to point you to Jesus, because we don't want anyone to sink. And if... If it's someone you know, what role does God want you to play to reach out to them to be the strength and encouragement for them? Uh, shepherds and prayer leaders, will you go to the places where you will receive people? Because we provide these places for prayer for you every Sunday. If there's something you want to bring in front of the church or someone who wants to give their life to Jesus today, today in baptism, come and join me in the front. And there are other places of prayer around this room where you can go and express yourself to people, have these people speak and pray blessings over you. Can we bow our heads and let's, let's pray before we sing a couple of songs. Uh, God, there are some Sundays where my fear, my concern is that I have so much to say. I just don't want it to be, I just don't want it to be confusing. There are Sundays where my prayer to you is to place upon me a heavy reminder that this is not about me being liked or uh, even appreciated. This is not about me being made worthy before you. It's that I just want to be a vessel for you to speak truth and life into people. So God, if I've said anything this morning that doesn't line up with who you are and what you want for us, may those words fall to the ground and bear no fruit and be trampled by you. But if I've spoken words that are true to your character and your mission. Let those words sink deep into hearts. Let them mess with us. Let, us, let those words call us into a, a greater life with you. Where there's despair in this room, speak and declare your hope. Where there is pain that needs to be voiced, please give people the courage to speak and give people around them the compassion to hear and enter into. And God, uh, however you want to use us this week to further advance your kingdom, do it, whether that means glorification or whether it means suffering. May Jesus become greater. May we become less. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing a couple of songs.